to the New Testament, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. The text for this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. Romans chapter 8, verses 28-30. This is the reading of God's Word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Almighty God, we thank you, Father, for you reveal in your word that you are the God who saves sinners. And Father, we acknowledge that Salvation is of you and not of ourselves. That you do not assist us, you do not give us um, a little help that we might save ourselves. That you are the one who saves from beginning to end. And Father, we pray even as you stretch us and grow us in understanding, in love for you, that we might come to a greater understanding of the work that you have done in saving us. And Father, we pray even in it, that we would acknowledge that we become far less and that you become exalted. Father, we thank you for in Jesus Christ we have one who is a perfect Savior. He saves from beginning to end. And that he is the one who receives all glory, honor, and praise. Father, we pray that even little children would understand this good news. We pray, Father, that if any are here who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, for a mighty work to be done by your Holy Spirit, that all who believe would cling more tightly to the good news of the gospel. And we pray that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> I think through some of the little kids' projects that I had as a kid growing up, And perhaps some of these projects uh, began with, okay, I have these grand plans. And, uh, hey, Dad, I might need your guidance. To, hey, Dad, I might need your assistance. To, hey, Dad, I might need your help. To, hey, Dad, I need you to finish the project for me. And somehow when the project is finished and it's presented at school and and then you get your grade, provided it's a good grade, you come back and say, wow. Look at this great work that I did. And if it's not a good grade, then it's, hey, mom, dad, what? <laughs> your help was not so great because the teacher gave you a B or something like that. How often is it that as you labor, as you struggle through the difficulties of life and in your own walk with Jesus Christ, that do we ever start to think that salvation is something that we accomplish, something that we achieve. Then we become just like this kid who thinks he needs a little help from his dad and, or mom, and it, it, it ends up that 
the parent does the whole thing. And so here, I think we need to be reminded that salvation is of the Lord. That here in this passage, salvation is described as a certainty. That God describes things when he plans things and he gives a prophecy of something that he describes the work. It's as good as done. It's as good as everything is already accomplished. And that you and I ought to understand that our salvation from beginning to end, from predestination to being called to being glorified, that in God's view, it is good as done. And it's not because he says, because I, I know that my child is strong enough and good enough and holy enough. No, it's not resting upon us. It's resting upon the perfect work of Jesus Christ. So here in Paul's letter, the Romans, <clears throat> often described as Paul's greatest epistle, the epistle to the Gentiles. <clears throat> and there's this constant refrain throughout this book. This doctrine of justification by faith. He begins, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. What he's saying is, I am exceedingly proud of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For in it the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And there, from there, he, he basically gives the intro. This, this is what I'm going to talk about. Righteousness by faith. And then he proceeds throughout the book to cover various subjects that are related to it. And then we get to Romans chapter 8 here, which many believe to be the pinnacle, the highlight of the entire letter. And so we are here, Romans 8, 28 to 30. The truth that we see is God's ultimate plan for his children is conformity to Christ, carried out in due time by so great salvation. God's ultimate plan for his children is conformity to Christ, carried out in due time by so great salvation. We'll look at this in three points. <clears throat> the first is God's grand plan for good, in verse 28. Second, the ultimate goal of his plan, in verse 29. And third, the due path of his plan in verse 30. In verse 28, we have the first point, God's grand plan for good. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I think about the, the context in which uh, Paul is talking in, here in verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things all things. So what is he referring to when he's talking about all things? Well, what, what, is, what is the context? The context, you, you think about in Romans chapter 8, he, he begins by saying that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And just so that you're clear on what this means, he, he doesn't say, when he says there's no, no condemnation for those who, who are in Christ Jesus, he didn't say there is nothing in you that is worthy of condemnation. He's not saying that at all. There still is in us right now, as people who are redeemed, there's still sin in us remaining. So he's not saying that there's nothing worthy of condemnation. He's not saying that you will get a lesser sentence from God, a lesser sentence than you deserve. Uh, he's, he's not saying, hey, listen, whatever problems God has, he's going to get over it, right? He's just going to forget about it. No. He doesn't say any one of those things because it's not the same message. 
The message is there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's no condemnation because Jesus bore the wrath of God for us, so the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Meaning, there's no condemnation because Jesus received that condemnation. That is why there's no condemnation for you and for me. He continues by talking about the work of the indwelling spirit in verses 9 through 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He speaks about the spirit of adoption. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. He says that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So there's actually a testimony. And, 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 it's, and it's subjective. That the Holy Spirit bears witness with us that we are children of God. Not only children, heirs. We're heirs of God. We receive the blessings that God gives in heaven. And we're fellow heirs with Christ. The only reason why we have anything that we receive is because Jesus, who is the firstborn among many brothers, gladly shares it with us, the adopted children. Verses 17 to 22, he speaks about the suffering of this present time. And I think this is what he's referring to, what Paul's referring to in verse 28 here when he says, all things. All things work together for good. He's talking about the suffering. Suffering of the present time. And he's saying, and by the way, God is going to use that. All things for good. Here, the goodness of God is manifested to his people. And part of our growth in Christ... Part of new life in Jesus Christ is that he completely changes our view of suffering. The worldly view is that suffering is for the weak and the helpless. The only people who would be suffering are those who are weak and helpless and are powerless to change their situation. That's why they're suffering. The new view that you and I are persuaded to adopt by the Holy Spirit is that suffering is the primary means by which God unites us to Jesus Christ and grants us a greater understanding about Him. Think for a moment about this passage, Philippians chapter 3. It says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Here, the Apostle Paul is talking about how he has a greater knowledge of him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. So what, what the Lord teaches you, what the Lord teaches me, is that when there is suffering for the name of Christ, we actually have greater fellowship with him. And, and this, is why, this is why when someone, for example, you have in, in the book of Acts, 
those who suffered on behalf of the name of Christ, afterwards, they didn't say, this was a horrible experience, and I'm no longer going to continue. What they said was, this was wonderful. And, and they said that uh, they considered themselves privileged, blessed, that they suffered for the name of Jesus Christ. And what's behind it is this greater fellowship. Wow, there was a closeness that you had. There was a closeness that I had when I was suffering for the name of Jesus that we never had before. And it brought me closer to Jesus Christ. It, it brought me to a greater understanding of what he went through on behalf of sinners. And that it's not as if we ever come to match the suffering that he had. It, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible. We, we get just a little small tidbit of that. We have also in this verse it speaks about God as the one who works all things together for good. God is the one who makes good come out of evil. He makes good come out of suffering and evil. Think about what, what Joseph understood at the end of the book of Genesis, in chapter 50. So many chapters about his life. And here, Joseph speaks to his brothers. And he just, he just addresses them candidly, right? He doesn't pull any punches. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So, here Joseph understands what God is doing. That God has great plans. And somehow, God is never uh, guilty, but his plans include the sins of men. Includes the sin of men regarding the crucifixion of our Lord. It, re it includes the sin of men regarding what Joseph, Joseph's brothers did to him. When you think about what they did to him, it, essentially, they were guilty of kidnapping. They were guilty of man-stealing. This is a capital offense. right? So, they... They thought about it and said, wait a minute, we can't. They threw him in the pit and they started thinking, wait, wait a minute, we can't, we can't kill him. He's our own flesh and blood. So let's, let's man-steal him instead by tying him up and selling him off to uh, the, was it the Ishmaelites? So he lost his freedom, he became a slave. That's what they did. You think about the evils of that. Oh no, he's our flesh and blood, we can't kill him, we'll just commit another capital offense against him. But all during this time, God had great plans that he would become the prime minister of Egypt. Perhaps as you're thinking through your salvation, you're wondering about what God is doing. What is God doing in my situation here, in your situation there? What is he teaching you? Is he indeed... Is he indeed making all things good? He's bringing good out of what looks like evil and harm. Is God really working for my good? When you and I, in so many ways, fail so often. Well, this is God's word. He's telling us all things work together for good. We're called according to his, pur to his purpose. That he commands us to love him. He commands us to trust in him. That he is working all things for our good. So that's the first point. God's grand plan for good. 
We have the second point, the ultimate goal of his plan. In verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here, this is God's ultimate goal, is that he desires to conform his people to the image of Christ. So suffering is never for suffering's sake. He doesn't cause us to suffer so that he can watch us, uh, watch us in pain and watch us in misery. No, he, he has us suffer so that he might refine us to be more like Jesus, our Lord, more like his son. And sadly, this is where people who profess the name of Christ, this is where this suffering, becoming like Christ, no, no, no. I want you to accept me just as I am. Well, to some degree, God accepts us as as we are, but he doesn't allow us to continue in that. So he, he receives all types of sinners, but he doesn't permit us to continue in our sin in the same ways that he requires that we be willing to change. And ultimately, it's the question... Are you willing to become like Christ or not? Do you desire to become like Christ? Is that who you want to be? And this is where many people who profess the name of Christ will then end up turning tail and running. Here in this verse, we have the mention of foreknowledge, for those whom he foreknew. And here, there are many who think of this foreknowledge of God as a foreknowledge of a fact or some decision. So it's not as if God looked in the future, which he can do, but it's not as if he looked in the future and foresaw who would choose him, who would choose him and says, I will, I will uh, choose them. He doesn't do that because the scriptures are very clear. There's only one thing that he sees in us. Romans 3, 9 to 12 for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So God's foreknowledge, all he sees is that every one of us would have rejected him. Every one of us would have, would have given the fist or something worse, some other unkind gesture to the Lord, and say, no. We refuse to have you rule over us. That's, that's all he would see. So it's not a foreknowledge of a fact or a decision. It's a foreknowledge, an intimate knowledge that God has of his people. It's mentioned here in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. This is where God gives the call to Jeremiah as a prophet. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So here... What he's talking about is that before, before Jeremiah, before there was even a heartbeat, before he was even you know, a, a combination of sperm and egg, God says, I knew you. That there was an intimate knowledge about this man. And he appointed this man, Jeremiah, to be a prophet to the nations. And so it's true for all of us that God knew us. And there was nothing inherently good in us. He didn't see any, he didn't foresee anything that was better about us than those that he didn't choose. 
But there was an intimate knowledge. It was an intimate knowledge about us. Jesus said, John 10, when he said, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. See, part of the preaching of God's word, part of the reading of God's word, is that the word spoken, the word preached, puts people in contact with the words of the shepherd. And that what happens in this gospel call, and it becomes the effectual or internal call, is that someone who is unsaved hears it and says, Hey, I recognize that voice. That is the voice of my master Jesus. And I'm going to keep following him. I've never heard that voice before until now, and I'm going to follow him. That is what's happening. So we have this intimate knowledge, this foreknowledge, of this relational knowledge that God has of his people. And that there's foreknowledge, and then there's predestination there in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What do we often hear when we hear people speak against predestination? Well... In many ways, it'd be hard to speak against it because it's so clear on the pages of Scripture. It's mentioned. It's mentioned in the Scriptures time and time again. And people have this wrong idea of, of viewing predestination as God limiting who gets into heaven. We're against this predestination because God limits people who get into heaven. It's like, oh, you've misunderstood. You've misunderstood the first step about total depravity. No one's earned it. No one wants it. Rather, we ought to see that predestination is God's way of guaranteeing that any will be saved at all. When we think about it that way, no one is saved. Everyone was lost in Adam. When Adam sinned, all of creation or all of humanity that would ever be born was lost. And that God had no obligation, no duty, no responsibility to save any one of them. He foreknew some. He predestined some. And those and those alone are the ones who will be saved by His grace, not by their works. And that all the others live and die in rebellion against God, they will get what they deserve. Justice. We think about God's guarantee. That is God's guarantee that any will be saved at all is that there is such a thing as predestination. We need to have the right view of it. And it's predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Think about how there's election. It's not elect because you're some special person, elect so that you can do your own thing. No, it's he elects us unto holiness. Ephesians 1, it's very clear that that we're elect unto holiness. That God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Not predestined to be some golden child. You're predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Some people like that. Hey, I, I am predestined. You're predestined to be conformed to Christ's image. Well, I don't like that second part. Well, it's all or nothing. You can't pick and choose. You can't have your own way. Right? This isn't Burger King here. This is, this is the Word of God as He presents it to us. So it's the image of Christ. Perhaps 
We need to be confronted with that image of Christ. Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Are you impressed yet? Are you excited about this image of Jesus Christ? Are you excited about being despised and forsaken of men? Of, of being overcome with sorrows and grief? Men hide their faces from you and being, you being despised and not being esteemed. Does this all sound great to you? Well, you know what? You think about the benefits that Jesus gives in the free offer of the gospel. We cannot say we'll take all the positives and we're going to throw out all those negatives. We want to take the positives and not the negatives. No, no, no. They all go together. That if we are going to reign with Jesus, if, you, if you're going to you're going to wear His crown, right? If you're going to wear His crown. You must the crown of glory, the, the crown of gold. You have to wear His crown of thorns. They have to go together, right? Before the crown was the cross. And if we're not impressed at all, we're not impressed about Jesus' difficult life and how the world hated Him. Why would you and I expect anything different? To be despised and rejected by men? This is what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is the one who says, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. But we also have to be saying, the cup, the cup of God's wrath, not my will, but your will be done. We are surrendering our wills to the Lord Jesus and what he would have us do and how he would have us live. There's all kinds of comfortable things that we would want. But if we're being conformed to the image of Christ, we have to be asking that question, are the decisions that I make every day, the decisions that you make every day, are they conforming you more to the image of Christ? The end result is that Christ is the firstborn among many brothers. That God's plan from eternity past is that Jesus would be a forerunner. That there would be many, these co-heirs of Christ. That Jesus would share his inheritance with us. Yes, he shares with those who are undeserving. But he gladly shares it. So that's the second point. The ultimate goal of his plan is conformity to Christ. We have the third point, the due path of his plan, verse 30. So God has a way of viewing his plans and viewing time. He views his plans as good as already done. I'll give you a simple example. Abraham and Sarah that he had already visited them and talked to them, <clears throat> talked about how his, their descendants would be like uh, the sand of the sea. Yet, he, they had no descendants. He had a, Abraham had a successor, Eliezer of Damascus, but he had no children. His wife was already old. Later, God visited them again. And God makes this statement, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, We'll have a son. Sarah was listening to it, and she laughed. And he repeated it. And he asked the question, is anything too difficult for the Lord? And uh, she denied it. I didn't laugh. 
He said, no, you did laugh. And there, the name of the child, Isaac, was actually changed based on that. The name of the child was given because this woman laughed at what God could do or couldn't do. But for God, it was good as done. So also, when we think about this, this passage, verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. God says it. And in his view, it is good as done. It's as good as done. God doesn't have any problems with the what-ifs in life. He doesn't, want, he doesn't wonder about the what-ifs. He doesn't have this, well, I didn't see that one coming. We have that all the time. And uh, he doesn't have the, you know what, my plans just fell through. Well, hey, we, we get that all the time. He never gets that. He never gets any of those. He only has his plan A. And his plan B, well, he never needs one. His plan A never fails. So he talks about this predestination, calling, justification, glorification. That this is all for him. I said it. I told it. It's done. And so we get to this thing called order of salvation. That our God is a God of order. He's not a God of confusion. That there's a logical order to these events. These events of redemption in a person's life. We think about a person walking in darkness. And then we think about a person dying in Christ and being glorified in heaven. And this order of salvation tells us from how you have a person who's walking in darkness, sees this marvelous light, and that eventually he lives his life and he dies and is glorified in heaven. So order of salvation explains to us what is going on between when he doesn't know Christ to he's in Christ and he dies in Christ and is glorified in heaven. So how does the Holy Spirit apply Christ, or how does he bring the elect into union with Jesus Christ? There's a logical order to the events of redemption. These events cannot be separated. So people like this, oh, God justifies sinners. We like that. But then there's also God sanctifies sinners. He cleanses us of our sin. Those two steps... Those two events can't be separated. Well, we like the justifying part. We don't so much like the, the sanctifying part. They can't be separated. But it is helpful to distinguish them for the sake of our own understanding. For the scriptures speak about these events. It ought to be an encouragement to all of you. Philippians 1.6 for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Meaning that God doesn't start a project and then stop it. Have you ever visited someone's home where there is a whole slew of projects that are just undone? Meaning they started a project here, started a project there, and, and then there's like a dozen projects that are started, but none of them are finished. God doesn't do such a thing. He begins a, a, a project. He, he starts a good work in someone's life, according to Philippians 1.6, and he carries it on to completion. God doesn't abandon what he starts. 
<clears throat> Here, the order of salvation is found in the scriptures, primarily in this passage. This is called the golden chain. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. <clears throat> but we also see it, we read it earlier in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Now I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. What is this new heart? God giving a new heart, taking away the heart of stone. This is, what is that other than regeneration? God giving new birth to people who are dead. And this putting my spirit within you and causing you to walk in my statutes, what is that other than sanctification? God purifying his people. <clears throat> so here, people wonder, well, is this a comprehensive text for Romans chapter 30? It's not a comprehensive list. And what we ought to understand about it is in the context in which it's given, <clears throat> God is talking about what he's doing. You think about... Predestination. He did all of that. He calls. He justifies. He glorifies. So he's talking about what God is doing. But there's obviously some things that need to happen there. <clears throat> so we talked last week about the gospel call. So there was the gospel call. There's also the internal call. As the gospel calls going out indiscriminately, inside, there is the internal call. There's also how is a person to be justified. Romans 10 speaks about how in a heart a man believes and is justified. So in order to be justified, a person must believe. There must be uh, this faith. But then how is he to believe unless he has a new heart? So there must be regeneration. We think about all these steps that, that come in. Or... How is he going to be glorified if he doesn't persevere in the faith? So we think about the order. We could say foreknowledge, predestination, calling, regeneration, then conversion, which consists of faith and repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and then glorification. Now... <clears throat> Perhaps some people's order of salvation may differ a bit. Some people have certain steps and others don't. But there are some key points. <clears throat> the Reformed view of salvation, regeneration must come before faith and repentance. A man is spiritually dead, and he cannot believe the good news of the gospel even unless he is made new in Christ. That that many who follow Jesus Christ tend to flip this around, that you have to believe in order to be born again. But no, you must be born again, made new in order for you to respond to the good news. We think about <clears throat> these plans. So predestination, God's decree from eternity past. After the fall, all are lost in Adam. But from the entirety of man, all the humanity, God predestined to save some. Last week we heard about that gospel call. And for us, it's often the first encounter with the order of salvation is we heard this man preaching. Or I opened my Bible and I started reading. 
And I, I started reading things that I've never read before in any book. And so this is often the first encounter for us. The tip of the iceberg is the gospel call. And God uses that to give us that internal call. Yet in due time, those who are predestined for salvation are called. And after calling, men are justified. And that's the big question in every religion. This justification. What is wrong with man? First off, what is, what is man's problem? And second, what is man's solution? How is a man made right before God? False religion, all of them. They distill down to the same thing. Man makes himself right with God. But true Christianity, God justifies man based on the work of another. Based on the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And that we are called to embrace that good news. That good news of the gospel by faith. Faith apart from works. How is a man justified? By believing in Jesus Christ. So you ask, where then is your boasting? The answer is, your boasting is eliminated. Because we believe upon the good news... We are forgiven of our sins. There was no working involved with our salvation in terms of our being justified. We didn't earn it in any way. It was by grace, apart from works. And after being justified, the elect look forward to being glorified. That in heaven, for an eternity, being glorified, our sin is completely removed. And that we look forward to an eternity in heaven with our Lord Jesus. And we think about a few ways in which these verses, this passage, the order of salvation could be of, of help to us and of use to us. It's a reminder to the wayward, this order of salvation, <clears throat> that the events of redemption are not a buffet. It's not a pick and choose. It's not a pick and choose what you'd like. You can pick the good and you leave the bad. No, it's all or none. It's a reminder to our covenant children that they need to hear the good news of the gospel and to believe it. This is part of the great blessing of being in a covenant home. Is that you have the privilege of hearing God's word read and taught in the home. You have the privilege of being required to come to church each Sunday... So that you might hear the word of God preached. And you might hear the good news of the gospel. Because the world doesn't have a gospel. It's only found in the word of God. That you are commanded to repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. And that, just talking to a friend this past week. And how he says in his church that they go... For months, he says, I can't remember the last time I heard the gospel at church. And I was saddened to hear that. And I said, I, I fail all the time. But as a preacher, my desire is that I would hear the gospel. And our people would hear the gospel every single Sunday. And the challenge is bringing out the good news of the gospel all the time. Because you know what? The gospel is good news for sinners. Yes, we need to hear the law preached. The law convicts us of our sin. But unless we have hope in the gospel, 
Unless the gospel is being preached to us and we're being told, believe upon it, trust in Jesus Christ, his work is perfect. You can continue on, you're not continuing in your guilt. How do we move forward? How do we go forward? How are we not overcome? And how are we not giving up? It's because we have the hope of the gospel presented to us. And for you covenant children, you're called to embrace it. You cannot be saved by having a pair of awesome parents who are faithful Christians. You must embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior. In fact, I warn you, covenant children, there will only be greater judgment having all these privileges if you reject this good news. It will be worse for you than for the person who is born without any exposure to the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It will be much worse for you. Believe upon Jesus and trust in Him. And this is also a comforting reminder that God is active in every part of your salvation. For those of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, struggling alone, this is your encouragement. The God who began a good work in you will carry it on completion. Though you and I fail every day, be reminded, God has done a mighty work, and He will continue it. He will perfect it. And that after it's all said and done, think back to how we started. The kid with the school project. Instead of saying, after all said and done, well, I got that A all by myself. No. We're saying, Lord Jesus, you've accomplished it all. You receive all the glory. The crown is thrown at the feet of Jesus. That he is the one who receives all glory, honor, and praise. That, that, of anything, is what you and I will walk away from. That we will walk, sorry, walk away with, is that we would come to see Jesus every step of the way. You've shown yourself faithful. Though I have shown myself weak and sinful. That Jesus is the one who receives all glory, honor, and praise in our salvation. We go to our God together in prayer.